who uh, are, are new or didn't um, know, Sue and I were celebrating our 15-year anniversary in Italy, where I think everyone should celebrate their 15-year anniversary with a baby. We took uh, our, our little five-month-old, Aria, and that was, uh, she was a better traveler than I, than I am, I found out. Um, jet lag took me about four days to, on the way there, and we'll find out on the way back. So the good news for you is I get really happy and loopy when I'm jet lagged, and you just never know what's going to come out of my mouth. So just warning you in advance this morning. And uh, I also just wanted to say thank you uh, on just a practical level. Um, they're probably all serving in kids' ministry. I don't see uh, Kristen, Tiffany in particular, and uh, Liz Koo, our beautiful staff team, has just done unbelievable while we were gone. And I just want to thank them. Um, among all those that serve on many different areas, thank you. Um, Sue and I were really able to decompress, probably more than we ever have over a, a little getaway. And, and just turn our minds off um, almost completely towards uh, church-related things. And that was really maybe the biggest gift of all, and uh, to really celebrate our marriage and our life together. And then uh, secondly, there were uh, countless numbers of you that I don't know who did it, who organized it, and I don't care. I'm just thankful. Many of you sewed into our little uh, traveling hiccup when we had to reschedule our flights due to our daughter's passport issues. And from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for that. That um, was an unbelievable, unexpected, and humbling gift. So thank you. And with that, I just want to start with um, just giving you four r somewhat random, related, unrelated thoughts from our trip. Is that all right to start with? I figured it's to ease, ease you in. And if you didn't get to see, I, I put all of our pictures um, from the trip on my Instagram stories, mostly so that those that are struggling with jealousy, rage, bitterness, resentment, and all those things, after 24 hours, they're gone. I don't even think you can find a picture anymore. So if you need to see some pictures, you're going to have to message me directly. Uh, the rest of you, you had your opportunity, and now I have wiped the slate clean in order for you not to go back and relive that resentment, jealousy, and unforgiveness in your heart. And, uh, and then also, just a reminder, like, you know, the pictures are, are always better than the reality, right? So we, we only showed you the highlights. It was my honor to make you all jealous. And... Um, yeah, it was it was uh, it was an unbelievable trip, and yet at the same time we just went nonstop. So I'm I'm ready to actually reflect. I missed, uh, to be honest, I missed my daily rhythms of time with the Lord, because it was near impossible with a baby and with so much to see and do. We were we were just kind of sucked into everything that Italy was, and it was an unbelievable gift. And at the same time, I realized like I don't need any of this. It wasn't a need. It was a celebration. You know, th those of you that have uh, had a wedding of, of late, that was not needs that were met on your wedding day, right? That was a celebration of who you are. And, and there's something about the beautiful part of the kingdom is that the Lord goes beyond just our needs, and he wants to celebrate us. And that was kind of a, one of the gifts of this trip was realizing that and just taking that all in. Um, but but my, my first random thought was that I realized I need daily bread, and I'm not, I'm not actually referring to, like, Italian pasta and pizza or paninis, which, by the way, the Italians have no concept of variety. It's, it's just pasta, pizza, and paninis all day, every day, in every Italian town. They haven't been made aware that there are other forms of cuisine. 
And as great as their stuff is, I must be honest, I'm like, all right, guys, um, maybe, you know, like anything else under the sun, they are very proud of their Italian food, and they don't care for anything else, apparently. But, but, but honestly, like, I, I realized I need that, that, that daily encounter with God. I need to feed on it. And I actually began longing for those daily rhythms of time with the Lord because I got outside of that, not in a bad way, but in a way where I'm like, I need to come back into my, my way of doing life with Jesus. I actually crave that. The trip was long enough that I could actually do that. I don't think I've ever gotten away from my family and kids and had that opportunity to crave that again. So that was amazing, number one. Number two, um, it, I had this phrase um, tying into those needs again, where like if I, w- if I was being honest, I think many of us wrestle when we pray to the Lord, God, if I only had this, God, if I only had this kind of person in my life, they could help me get over this hump. If I, if I only had this person working for me, my business could come to another level. If I only had these resources, um, you know, my, my whatever influence would be able to ha- take it to another level or I could be more prosperous. If I only had this house, maybe I'd want to stay in California. If I only had whatever, there's a tension in the kingdom, and, and yet he's given us everything, and yet we're to ask him for what we, what? Ask anything in my name. There's this tension between I've given you everything and ask me anything. And, and I was kind of just wrestling with that, and, and how the kingdom is for those who have everything they need, and we're to ask, and at the same time, why does he do this? It's because our requests, the things that we end up asking him. Sue and I spent some time just kind of like whittling away, what is it that we really want to go after with our lives? And, and we kept not being kind of like fully happy with our requests to the Lord. Why? Because your requests reveal your heart. What you really want from the Lord when you really go to him. If he was a genie in a bottle and you could ask him anything, what you really come down to asking reveals what's in your heart. And he wants your heart. That's why he wants you to ask him anything. That process connects you to knowing him. And his goal is always to know you, to restore you, to grow you more than before. Number three, the cross. Uh, All over Italy are the pictures of crosses, and there's churches, and they're all 500 years old. They're all beautiful, and none of them are filled. A few of them have some some gray-haired, faithful Italian Catholics going to them. Um, but But it was, we were wandering some villages, and I just was captivated by the image of the cross on top of every church. And how this is the Roman Empire. And yet the symbol of Christ is everywhere. Even a small village of a few people has three churches. And I'm like, what did they do with three churches in this town that never had more than a few hundred people? I don't know. Maybe there was a, you know, I'm not going to church with this guy, so I'm going to build a new church here. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I'd like to actually ask some Italians how that happened. But the cross, the symbol of Christ and his crucifixion was everywhere. And I had mixed emotions. One, just like the, the absolute kind of lack of, of a belief system, a structure in those passionately following Jesus everywhere, just the, the, the kind of the lack of life, and yet also kind of captivated by the fact that it's not dead completely. Last Sunday, I, I walked by, uh, and I went on a run, actually, and and I walked, I ran by a church, and it was having service, same time as ours. I could peer in, 
And there there were people sitting under the teaching of the Word of God in this little town. And I just felt like it's not done. Italy, they're not done. The kingdom is not done on any part of the globe. And, and we can sit here uh, and maybe judge a little bit from our perspective of like, well, what did they do in Europe or wherever else where things seem to be dead and lifeless? Or we can say, look at that shred, that, that, that significant group of people that are still hanging on to the hope of Christ and saying and declaring over them, fill these communities with fiery, passionate believers that are willing to give their all and their lives for you again. We have the same thing here. There are still far too many empty church buildings on a Sunday morning. And if even half the population was worshiping Jesus, we would not have space for the people. There are not too many churches that are just not enough followers of Jesus. We have an amazing opportunity in this nation because when you plant a church, there is always a hungry community willing and ready to start some momentum. I started reflecting on like how difficult the, the land must be in Italy for a missionary to go there and start stirring the pot. I could not find an expression, anything similar to what we would call church happening in any of the towns. We went to like four or five different places. I couldn't find anything beyond a few desperate Catholic churches. And so I blessed them. And I said, you've got, you've got the remnants of what this nation needs. You still may be, under, I don't know what they're representing or what gospel they're preaching, but I know that they know Jesus and that they have a cross that still stands at the tower of what they are gathering around. And I decreed from that place. And that, that jolted me, and I'm still processing that. So number three, the cross. And number four, I, I hope... This is what I came away with. I actually hope that I disappoint all of you many, many times. And let me explain that because that sounds a little dark. <laughs> so, so Sue and I were one of the highlights of the trip. We listened to this podcast. Um, any of you familiar with Mark Driscoll and his church in Seattle? Um, not very many of you. He's kind of, it was a few years ago that that all went down. Um, he's actually replanted and started in Phoenix. Um, but the Christianity Today put out this podcast over the last couple months, and there's a series of, of uh, talks. They're really well done. And uh, we started listening to it. Sue found the podcast, and it kind of became like our talking point. And uh, ultimately what was going on there was this tension of this church. It was the, I believe it was the fastest growing church in America at one point. And the leader, Mark Driscoll, was kind of known for his uh, real crass, kind of cavalier, kind of didn't care if he offended you with just his presentation and so forth. He really loved to go after men and calling them higher, to a higher standard, and not messing around with just kind of like uh, lighthearted, feel-good Christianity. He was, he was famous for calling churches a bunch of like fuchsia, pink, and purple, decorated, feel-good like a bunch of women had had control over everything and would a man even come here and want to give his life to anything. And, and so he's kind of known for saying things like that. Um, ultimately, though, he's also known for having a, a character flaw that caused like endless dozens of people of his staff to come forward and say that, that we are sick um, as, as a staff because of the leadership culture around here. And what was interesting about the, the talk was that it kind of went deeper into kind of where things are coming from. Ultimately, that church was still founded on, on the person of Jesus. And so there was accountability eventually, and the gospel was still preached. And you had all these people that are in conflict with the reality that they saw 
many, many, many thousands of people come to Jesus and be discipled, and the word was preached, and yet you had under the foundation, the issue was a character flaw. And that character flaw allowed there to be a crack that couldn't sustain the weight of the ministry. And, and I think our temptation is to throw the baby out with the bathwater with everything. And what, what came back to me was, this is just another story of the kingdom of God, where a flawed leader is still able to have unbelievable positive kingdom fruit. And yet when your character is not able to withstand what the Lord is pouring out, the foundation can crack and everything can crumble. And at the same time, we see that God's not afraid. His entire book is filled with flawed men and women who weren't able to sustain long-term, but he honors them for whatever they did in the moment or in the season. And so we were kind of gripped with that tension. It was kind of like listening to like a, a Christian church mystery novel thing. Uh, like, like they kept kind of bringing up these things. Oh, but what about this? And this was amazing. And you had these people that are just living in these tensions, even as they reflect back. And ultimately, I hope I disappoint all of you at some point because of this. Sue and I were just sitting there and talking about the plumb lines we want our life to be marked by. And we're going back to like the basics, going like, I want to say again that I'm going back to, I don't care about anything other than first and foremost, my commitment to the plumb line of, of Christ, Holy Spirit, and the Father God, the Trinitarian theology that weighs on my heart to say, I am first and foremost serving that above all else. And even my family comes under that. But it does come under that. And even under my family comes the church and the people that I serve. And so, if I am doing things right, I'm going to disappoint the people that are underneath that plumb line. And so I hope I do that. Because the only, the only point, the only part that we can confidently say is that we have a firm foundation when I'm willing to disappoint people because I have built a foundation on the right thing. And when I start to get off track, I come back. And I'm willing to let the Word of God and the voice of God pierce me, discipline me, correct me. And we had to just go through that process again. How, how have our priorities in our life kind of gotten off track? And I encourage all of you today, we have to do that constantly. Where in my life is the line that makes everything matter? And where have I put priorities? And not just where have I told, you know, the people closest to. Yes, we all say the right things. We all know where it's, things are supposed to align. But have you actually done the deep work again of saying, is this what my life actually looks like? Are my priorities in that place? And maybe there are some things I need to disappoint people in because I have to get the things back in order. So just encouraging you today, get, get life in order. I had to do the same thing. We have to do it continually. It's the only way to build a foundation that lasts. Okay, so transitioning that, that's just a little bit of my, my uh, two weeks in Italy and some of the things churning in the back of my mind. And we've been in a, a series on the prophetic and learning the voice of God. And we're transitioning this fall into the purposes of God, purposes of God on your life. I, I have felt more than anything else that what has come out of COVID is that people are desperate to go after a life with purpose. And, and so we're going to spend, we're going to launch actually um, in, in late August, 40 days of purpose. And all of our groups, whether you're already in a group or you aren't in a group, we're going to invite everyone to be part of a 40-day, a six-week group on delving into our purposes as human beings. What is our purpose? And, and we'll find different times of the week to do that, just six weeks. And, and what we want to do is, 
is hone in. We'll be teaching on Sunday, but then the gatherings will be a, a place that we can kind of take that topic and go deeper and process and, and then sharpen each other under that. And so what, what I want you to do is to start to kind of prepare yourself. The next several weeks, we're going to dive into our vision and values, um, kind of a mini-series. And on the back as you walk in, you see the four things that we kind of have, have built our culture around. Uh, the Word and Spirit, that we're a missional family, that the good news is power, and the beauty of holiness. And, and this morning, I want to actually start with the fourth, the beauty of holiness. Um, mostly because that's, that's one of the areas that the Holy Spirit started uh, just going deeper in my own life when we were in Italy than the few moments that I had outside of carrying a, a baby around on my chest, sweating through the non-air-conditioned Italian whatever. Can you, I mean, can someone please, after service, explain to me why Italians don't believe in air conditioning? Well, then I, I swear Italy is just as hot as anywhere in America that I've lived. I'm used to being in Europe. I'm a Norwegian. My dad's from Norway. We've gone to Europe many times. I don't think I've hung out in southern Europe as long as we have. And I still cannot wrap my mind around two things beyond the, the food thing. Is, is no air conditioning and no dryers for your laundry. Like they, they just have like this sick affection with hanging their laundry out to dry in the dirty air. <laughs> like Everybody. I mean, it didn't matter how wealthy they were. They would hang their laundry out the window just to let the dirt and the grime and the whatever else. And then the amount of work to just pin each sock on this line. Like, I'm watching. I mean, these were not just, like, poor people. Like, they're, they're, and nothing against poor people hanging their laundry. I, I, but, I mean, I, I, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. And you know how many days it takes for a, for a pair of jeans to dry when it's just, like, hanging on your balcony? It takes two days. It takes two days. That's how long it takes. So some questions I have um, for, for the European continent. I don't know. We'll never, we'll never work it out. Um, but there was also some things that I wish that we would embrace, and that is, like, our gas stations need to up their game. Our gas stations compared to Italian gas stations, just the, the amount of dishes that they run, like, they won't do their, they won't do their, their clothes in a washer, but they'll do their espresso cups because, God forbid, you have to drink an espresso out of a plastic cup in Italy. They serve, in, in, even in the gas stations, they serve you on China, whether you get your panini or your espresso in China, and they will wash. They've got like a whole team of people in a gas station washing espresso cups, not their clothes, but their espresso cups, and it is kind of an amazing experience to pull over after a, a long drive. We drove all over the place, and to kind of sit there in your, in your $4, like, plastic chair and, and in your $8 espresso china and just to sip an espresso. And it's always a, a euro, one euro for an espresso everywhere you go. It's, it's like a standard in Italy. I don't know. I don't understand that. I wish we would receive that. So I'm not, I'm not just bashing Italy. It's the tension that I, I, that I just don't get our culture in theirs. I told you I'd be loopy. Okay. Um, where was I? So the beauty of holiness. Um, because they're related, right? So, so I, I, I'd like to talk about the beauty of holiness this morning. Um, it kind of started, one of the reasons why that term, the beauty of holiness, became one of our anchor phrases was back before we had planted the church, we were, um, we were actually still in the, pro from the moment we were here, we moved here knowing we were going to plant a church. 
But uh, I was a professor. We were starting this kind of um, hybrid uh, uh, Bible program on this campus a, a couple miles away. And uh, Cheryl, the director here, as well as uh, Christina Kale, the director of SoCal School of, of, of Supernatural Ministry, we were becoming quick friends, and we were trying to design this, this kind of hybrid where students could get a degree with the school we were part of and then also get this kind of uh, prayer and, and ministry training kind of thing all together. And the point is, is that we heard a lot of stories. Cheryl Allen, if you haven't met her, She's got a dream, a visitation, a testimony for everything under the sun. And, and so we got to hear all this like history of L.A. and the House of Prayer and all these amazing things. And they were great. But uh, at one point, I remember she kind of shared this, um, this word that someone had, had given her about a, a kind of just a movement of churches that, that would be identified by several things. And I, I, I must admit, I was kind of like, I was listening, but the only thing I remember was this phrase, that they would be marked by the beauty of holiness. And I just stopped. And, and I, I use this as an example because if anyone is ever sharing something of an, of an encounter with God, whether it's something that they found in Scripture or something that, that God invaded their life and, and ministered to them and talked to them about, if you, if you feel life on that, and you feel like this like healthy jealousy, like, ah, oh, I want that, you know what that is? That's your invitation to take that word and make it a part of your life. And when I heard her give that, that experience of, of what she had received in that word, I said, that's something for me. That's something for the church that we are going to plant, and that is something that I don't even have fully figured out. What does the beauty of holiness look like? Holiness is not even a word that we even talk about a whole lot besides the Holy Spirit and God, you're so holy. I, I, I was reading this book while we were in Italy, um, John Eldridge. I hadn't read a book by John Eldridge since Wild at Heart came out in like 1995, and every young man had to read it because he quoted William Wallace and other movies, and it was just like the thing to do. But apparently he's still an author, and he's still writing amazing stuff. And, and I was, I was, this book was all about holiness. And he, he, he shared that there were a series of talks that he gave where he would actually ask the audience about holiness. And, and these were mostly Christians. And the response from Christians about their, their understanding of what holiness was, what came to mind when you hear the word holiness? This is what they say. Uh, boring. Uh, denial, as in like self-denial. Discipline. Unattainable. Striving. This is all about what they think of holiness. The goal Separation, as in separated from the world, that sort of thing. Hard. That was a summary. And I'm like, oh. And we have that in like our four, four things. Uh, I hope that we can change the perception. And he's doing the same thing in the book. He goes, this is heartbreaking, that all associations with this word are crushing and unattainable. Hard, separation, the goal, striving, unattainable, discipline, denial, boring, holiness. If that's our image of holiness, we've completely missed everything that the Father has ever tried to communicate about what he's like, who he's given in the spirit, and who we are to be. It's heartbreaking. In Ephesians 1, uh, actually we're going to start with some scripture. Let me just jump into Ephesians 1. If you've got a Bible or something to read on it, I think it's going to be up here too, hopefully. Um, I'm going to read at least the first part of Ephesians 1. How blessed is God and what a blessing he is. 
He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross. We're a free people. Free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds. And not just barely free either, abundantly free. He thought of everything provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him, everything in deepest heaven and everything on planet Earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. Ephesians 1. So, as you receive that, I just want to make a couple comments from these verses. The first is to point out whole and holy. His focus in verse 3 to 6 is to make you whole and holy. By what? His love. Every image you have of holiness needs to be put into a concept of wholeness. And it needs to be brought from a focused point of God's love. Whenever we take it, and I know that we know that theologically, but you don't know it if a believer is saying that when I think of holiness, I think of discipline, hardness, striving, boring. You have not understood his wholeness and his holiness that is supposed to be felt through the purposes of his love. Secondly, verse 7 to 10. I want you to see in verse 3 to 6, it's his focus through his love, whole and holy. 7 to 10, because of the cross, what happens? You have abundant freedom and everything you could possibly need. Your needs are met. He cares about your needs. And he cares about your freedom. The cross is not something to put you under a heavy weight and burden. It's to set you free. And it's to give you what you could ever possibly need. And then verse 11 and 12, what do we find in Christ? You find your purpose. Your entire purpose as a human being is found in this place. Now that sounds maybe ethereal, big picture. We're going to go after this in the coming weeks. But I want the whole framework and the whole understanding of holiness to be brought into a fresh light. Eldridge says this, Yet in order to make human beings what they are meant to be, the love of God seeks to make us whole and holy. In fact, the assumption of the New Testament is that you cannot become whole without becoming holy. Not, can, you cannot literally become holy without becoming whole. The two go hand in hand. Perhaps there is a rescue waiting for us if we can escape our misunderstanding of what Christianity is to do to a person. That is our question today. What is Christianity actually supposed to do to a person? 
And what's the role of holiness in that? Could you even answer that if someone would sit next to you on the train, a bus, or a plane? What is it that Christianity is actually supposed to do to me? I think the key is in understanding holiness and the fact that we don't understand it or we think that it's boring or striving or a discipline or a heavy burden might describe a bit of why we don't actually know what it's supposed to do to us. Even though many of us have had our entire lives changed by it, I'm not sure we're sure how to communicate what it's supposed to do. <laughs> if there's one word of what our faith is meant to do to us, Restoration. It's restoration. But what is restoration? Uh, a couple summers ago, uh, this is going to sound like I know it's obnoxious when we travel. When we travel, we make it count in our family. So the last time I traveled internationally, it was to France. We did a missional retreat two summers ago. How many, were any of you that are in here today were there with us? Yeah, a few of you. Yeah, see those hands? Okay, amen. Only a few. We're hopefully going to be going back um, next summer to a, a missional retreat in the north of France, in Normandy. We have some amazing friends, um, Gerard and Chrissy Kelly, who are Brits that lead a, a kind of a missions uh, and a retreat hub in, in the Normandy region. And while we were there, um, they do this seven stories uh, experience. And one of the seven stories is about restoration. And the phrase that they would continue to use is, the restoration story in Scripture is all about restore more than before. Restoration isn't taking you back to the garden. In fact, some of, my, some of my own notes from that whole experience that we went through with them was that restore more than before is the story the Bible tells. There's a task that Adam and Eve had, and Jesus makes possible what was impossible to, to restore more than before. Jesus did not come to get us back to the garden. He came so that we could get forward to the city. The, the Gospels then ends with Revelation by, by, the, by the Apostle John writing of a new city and a new Jerusalem. We are not to go back to the Garden of Eden. We're to move forward to a new city. Abraham dreamed of this new city. So Jesus did not come to restore us to a condition that we had before the fall. He comes to restore us to a condition that we would have been in had the fall never happened which is the fulfillment of God's intention. And that is the story of the narrative happening from Genesis to Revelation. So the story does not go from a garden to a problem and then back to a garden. It goes from a garden to Jesus, to God's fulfillment of his intention on the earth, which is the restoration of everything. Not just you, everything, all of creation. That's why our verse is all of creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Why? Because that begins the process. I cannot tell you what you will go through in life, what struggles and, and tunnels and seasons of joy and struggle, but we can tell you this, you are living towards something. The purposes of God tell you that you are living towards something, your life means something, which is the fulfillment of every promise he's ever had. We are always in Christ moving towards the glory of the Father and the newness of the purposes of his joy. Even in the valley of the shadow of death we may walk, we are always moving towards that. It's the truth for the planet, and it's true for me, and it's true for you. Life is always moving towards the city. I had a baby for two weeks. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me. I don't get distracted. There's not a single thing a child can do to stop my conversation. 
Life is always toward renewal, restoration, and joy. God's plan. We even see this back in Exodus. The slaves are rescued from an evil place. In Jesus, the place is rescued from evil. And we have it backwards often. We think it's great and it'll be wonderful when we're taken out of this horrible, evil place. And much of the church has this theology of being rescued out of earth to heaven. That's just not the gospel. When I die, I mean, I plan to spend a lot of of eternity in heaven. The gospel has nothing to do with rescuing you from earth to take you into heaven. The gospel is all about heaven coming to earth to restore the entire thing that has been lost, not to go back to a garden, but to move towards a place that will exist as if the fall never happened. When you walk through a city and see a city, don't think of it as being just, okay, it's all disgusting and sinful and horrible, but it's okay because Jesus is going to rescue me and take me out of here. If you walk through a city focused on its filth and eager to be taken out of it, you are missing the heart of the gospel. The gospel longs for you to want to stay in the city, to be salt in the city, Lot's wife became salt because she longed for the wrong thing. She becomes salt because she was supposed to be the salt of that city. And she craved the things of the city rather than to be what the city needed. So the picture is to show you this is what she missed. Jesus becomes Adam. This is a phrase if you're not familiar with it. Jesus is called the last Adam. To restore us to the Father. But his goal is not for him to rule the earth, but for you to rule the earth with him. He ascended to the Father. He was to focus not on God's purposes there, but his purposes here. You and I. It is better that I go, Jesus says, so that I can send the helper, the Holy Spirit of God, and that you can step in to continue my work. The goal is to release Adam and Eve's restored to their authority all across the earth. So he ascends. And you know, the Orthodox community... We were in Jerusalem. Here's another amazing spot. When we went to Jerusalem a couple years ago, and we, we were uh, leading a tour, and, and we happened to be there when the Orthodox were celebrating Ascension. It's a huge deal on their calendar. And the, the streets of all Jerusalem are just packed with people. The reason why they celebrate the Ascension uh, is, is because they, they actually believe that is the key to making Pentecost possible was the ascension. He had to go so he could ascend and send the Spirit. So Peter and others don't know what they're waiting for, if you remember Pentecost. Then all of a sudden, the Spirit of God comes and unleashes wind and fire and tongues. And the conversation with Peter is that they all think that that these people are drunk and out of their minds. And he says, he reminds them of the prophets. He reminds them of God's voice through the prophets and reminds them what have the prophets said. And he says, this is that. This what you're seeing. These people that a few moments ago, you couldn't even recognize them. They're now, they're just all over the place with with joy at 9 a.m. They're on the floor. They're talking in tongues from other languages. What is happening? This is what the prophets promised. Your old men will dream dreams. Men will have visions. He could have quoted endless other prophetic voices. But here's the thing. The flourishing promises in the prophets 
is what we were after. And he's saying, this is that. This is your invitation. What was promised, now you have the place and the opportunity and the invitation to take part. He's not saying that this drunken state is the completion of the fullness of God's kingdom. He's saying it's the beginning of it. This ability to receive from the Holy Spirit is the key to everything happening in the kingdom. And there's a profound link between receiving the Spirit and doing the works of God. When we start to recover this in any way, shape, and form, this is the joy of our life. When you start, I mean, think of the, 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 the days, the moments where you start to realize, I'm partnering with the living God. If you have not prayed for someone and seen something shift, you've seen a, a, a healing, seen their, their lenses drop, seen love invade their being, see someone surrender to, to the person of Jesus and give their lives fully to him, if you haven't gotten the blessing of seeing a life touched by the living God, Those that have know with their entire being, this is what I'll give every moment for the rest of my life for. My wrestle is that I'm constantly struggling with how do I continue to live in this tension of heaven and earth. I'm still trapped in this, in this body with these, with these tension points and these responsibilities and this stuff of the earth. But yet we get these moments where heaven touches earth and I get to be this conduit of the Spirit of God. And when you touch that, Peter says, this is that. This is what the prophets spoke of. And we want to be the kind of people that are completely open, that we are imperfect, that we are not holy in and of ourselves, that we have just as much brokenness and family issues and everything under the sun that everyone out there deals with. But we've seen a living God invade. I've experienced too much of his love, his wholeness, and his holiness to stay the same and to not offer you a taste. And that taste keeps getting better. And I have my days where I, I, I question everything. And I wonder if he's really meeting my needs. And I wonder if everything he's promised is really promises. And then I sit with him. Or, then he, or he just invades a moment of my day. And I get humbled and I go to my knees and then my mind's flooded with all these memories of everything he's ever done. We get to spend the rest of our days not stumbling over our screw-ups not devaluing everything that he's ever done because maybe our character hadn't caught up to his blessing. But saying, I'm willing to endure anything for the, for the purpose of my character aligning with his. So that a foundation can be laid for the family of God that comes after me to continue to take ground, to release his freedom, his life, his love, his salvation to the ends of the earth. And I will not wish to be taken away early. I don't need to be rescued. I've got everything I need, even when it doesn't feel like it. That's the gospel. All right, I'm going to skip some stuff because i got to get to the end here. All right, Romans 8 says this. In Romans 8, 29 to 30, 
God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. I sometimes question if God knows what he's doing when I look at my own life. Like, what the flip are you doing, God? Why would you put me here doing this? I'm completely unqualified. Or why would you put this person here? Why? Like, when I see the fruit on some people's lives, I, I question him all the time. Why does Paul talk about that God knows what he's doing? It's because we always look at God and go, what the heck are you doing? And he decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who would love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity that he restored. We see the original and the intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then, after getting established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. So what's the point? God shapes our existence and makes it clear around the person of Jesus, number one. And it requires restoration, the healing of our whole person. That's the purpose of Christianity. Wholeness and holiness. Then in Hebrew, I just want to say this is a theme. I'm I'm not quoting these scriptures randomly. It shows that this is a theme through all of scripture. In, In Hebrews, it talks about how we endure hardship as discipline. And when we do that, he's treating you like children. And we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it, many of us. And how much more should we submit to the father of of spirits and live, Paul says. They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may, what? Share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore... This is what you do with it. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Well, why would Paul merge this, these concepts of holiness with the concept of healing? All God does that we often don't understand, correcting, guiding, and discipline, this is all so that we might share in this whatever holiness is. It's so that we share in it, this holiness. Therefore, choose your way carefully so that whatever is broken might be healed. The point of restoration is healing and wholeness of all of creation. Whatever holiness is, the effect of holiness is healing. That's why Jesus did so many healings. Not because he had a job to get as many people healed as possible. It was so that he could demonstrate what God was doing in the affairs of human beings. Wholeness and holiness demonstrated by healing. There was a, there was a man that he says the, the most famous phrase of Jesus when he healed was what? Pick up your mat and walk. He did that on the Sabbath intentionally to offend the religious. They were putting burdens and oppression and nothing close to heavenly freedom on the people. Because he knew it would offend them. And that then he could invite the people to see what the Father was really offering. What real healing looked like. And so that he could call out the perversion of the religious system. And there's always that temptation of those who follow the way of God. To need to be purified. 
out of religious systems. We include it. And there's mindsets that hold us back. And so much of our Christian activity, many of the amazing things, but, but just doing community and just doing gatherings without the purpose of restoring the whole person is utterly pointless. Everything we do, every gathering, every meal, every group, it's all for the purpose. Every class, everything we do as a community is for the purpose of restoring the whole person. If you want to help us build something, it's whenever something just feels a little bit off. What part can I play to help get us back to the plumb line of what we're to be about as a church? What is that plumb line? It's what is this gathering supposed to do to restore the whole person? And how can I play a part in getting us back to that focus? If every single person in our, in our community would anchor themselves on that aim, we will see unbelievable fruit. We will see unbelievable impact. Wholeness and healing is essential to the gospel and the entire approach to the way of Jesus. Jesus says this. He goes, these people's hearts have become callous looking at the religious people. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. So there he's like merging these concepts of trying to explain to them the physical healing is only to show you the deeper work of healing that your entire person craves and what you need. And your calloused hearts are keeping you from my invitation. If you turn, I'll heal you. His offer shows us that we've completely missed the point. And I can miss the point, and you can miss the point. We are not going after therapeutic Christianity. We're not going after just fixing anxiety, depression, marriages, relationships, and loneliness. There are ways to go after those things apart from Christianity that still have limited and sometimes very positive effect. But we highlight the issues and problems of humanity which include loneliness, depression, marriages, and relationships. And we go after what's missing. What's missing is the transformation of character. Are you focused on getting your problems fixed or getting your character refined? That's where the gospel comes in, where Christ comes in and draws the line. Are you focused on getting your problems fixed or are you focused on having your character refined? When I lay my head down in a grave, my problems will not matter. Whatever character I was able to refine through my life is what I have left those behind me. And it's what you really care about at the end of the day. What is Christianity supposed to do to a person? To restore you. To transform you. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. He's after restoration. So look at the problems of the world and many of us that we face. So many are consumed with just the problems of life. Think of the people around you. Whether, whether they've got uh, issues of, of jealousy, of rage, whatever it is, addiction, Think about what a person that's completely crippled by their problems. 
crippled by loneliness, crippled by depression, crippled by anxiety. Imagine if that was gone when they woke up tomorrow. What would that be? It would be a relief. As Eldridge says, it would be an utter relief. And if you took every last area that you struggled with, in fact, bring it to mind. What would it look like? What would my life look like if I never struggled with my problems ever again? What would your life look like? Picture the relief of your soul. I'd like to ask the worship team to come up. And as I close, we're going to have communion today. But I want to ask us a couple more questions as those guys start to make their way up. What do we need to get there to address the problems of life? We need wholeness and we need holiness. Genuine wholeness cannot be found apart from genuine goodness. We miss it when therapeutic Christianity tries to attain wholeness without holiness. When we try to be made whole without God's holiness. When we try to attain a type of holiness without that wholeness, meaning that righteousness and moral living can become a focus and we never deal with the deep stuff. You cannot become the person God made you to be without the healing of your humanity. And you cannot get holiness without wholeness. If you could recover a vision of this kind of holiness, what it actually is, I believe we would be so captivated by it, we would wake up every morning. And as we spend time with the living God, what would be before us was the holiness that we actually believe is possible. A vision of being freed from everything that holds us back. The things that we're churning on. When I stress out, and I stress out constantly throughout my week, what I'm really living under, under every single stress, is a conviction that I'm not freed and I'm not whole and something hasn't been made holy. And I'm trying to solve it. with striving and effort. And the beauty of the kingdom is nothing gets solved that way. On our website, under the beauty of holiness, if you, if you click our little vision piece, we keep this little phrase that we've had from the, from the beginning of putting these anchor statements up. And this is what we write. And I just want you to close your eyes and just receive these words this fresh vision of holiness over our life for each other and for your lives, for your families, for your relationships. Holiness is goodness separated from all evil. Jesus himself lived in this place. We believe there's a, a revelation of worship that we are to pursue found in the concepts that the Psalms refer to as the beauty of holiness. There are measures of God's character found in encountering his holiness, and the church is intended to radiate the beauty of God through that revelation. 
We must be a people walking in the power of God. But the holiness of his nature must be what we encounter in worship. A beautiful church isn't a result of right actions, but encountering the beauty of his holiness. Would you stand? In Psalm 29, it says, Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Again, put your hand over your heart or put a posture however you want to receive. I want to apply today three things. First is this. Let a fresh vision of this holiness capture your heart. Let its healing affect every single part of your body, mind, soul, and spirit. A fresh vision of holiness. Replace the boring, striving weight that the world has said holiness is with its restorative, creative, purpose-filled glory. Number two, take your problems. Put them before you. What would my life look like if I never struggled with this again? Do you actually believe it's possible? What would your life look like if your problems were never a struggle for you to get? Now, there are things that you can't help. There are, you've got family members in the hospital. You've got broken relationships that can't be solved in a day. But what you're carrying, the problem on your soul, where you are churning and you are living your days completely under the weight of something that you can't break free from? What would it look like if the weight of that problem had no sway when you lifted your head off the pillow in the morning? What would it look like? And third, focus on character. Are you focused on getting your problems fixed or having your character refined? When a church is willing to say, God, I give you my problems for the purpose of my character rather than for fixing my problems. Watch your problems get met and your character get strengthened in the same breath. As we close, I want to invite you to come forward. We have communion here and here. We, we, we invite everyone. This is open communion, so you can come with those that you've come to church with. We're going to be officially done. We're going to just let the worship team just um, close the time this morning. And those of you with kids, if you could go get them in the next five minutes or so. But as you come forward, taking communion, if ministry teams could come up and kind of just kind of hang around the communion tables. Uh, if you've got something that you want to give the Lord in this, after you take communion, just linger up here a bit. And we're just going to have some folks praying. Other than that, Love you. Have an amazing, amazing week bringing this to the Lord. These questions. He wants you to bring him everything, raw, real, and everything in between. So come forward, take communion, and we'll be done for the day. God bless you.